0: We cannot comprehend what comprehends us. We cannot comprehend what comprehends us. Uh, The novelist Wendell Berry, I think, is onto something with this statement. If we're honest, everything in the book of Hebrews so far is very otherworldly. It's difficult to comprehend. We're not very far in the letter. In fact, we've just made it out of the introduction. We've already learned that Jesus is eternal, He's the uncreated son of God. Through him, all things were made and everything exists for his sake. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. He's seated at the right hand of God in majesty. He is our high priest who's made purifications for our sins. Angels are worshiping around his throne. It's a lot. It's all very out there. It's transcendent. It's otherworldly. How can we comprehend this reality that comprehends us? In our passage last week, as the author comes to the end of the introduction, he lays down his first call to action. He says, therefore, pay much closer attention. Closer attention than you ever have to anything else. Pay closer attention to this message, lest you drift away from it. And so on the one hand, he's saying, pay closer attention to Christ's divinity, his exaltation, who he is as the son of God. But this passage that we looked at last week also has hinges. It serves as a door that leads us into this next passage. The author is saying, and also pay closer attention to this, his humanity. The fact that the son of God became one of us. In many religions of the world, Uh, God is so transcendent. He's so majestic. He's so holy. He's so other that God couldn't possibly be caught dead slumming it with us in creation. There are philosophies that say we can't speak about what God is. We can only speak about what God is not. We can only speak of God in negation. So God is not chair. God is not lamp. God is not you name it. And that's the only way we can speak of God. But at the heart of the Christian faith is the belief that God became one of us, that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully human, two natures in one person. And this is a profound mystery. As our passage puts it, he partook in flesh and blood. But I actually really like the way Eugene Peterson puts it. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And because of this, the one who comprehends us became comprehensible. The one who comprehends us, who is so big and other, suddenly is knowable by us. And we can journey into knowing him further still. And so today we move from having considered considered the divinity and exaltation of Jesus to considering his flesh and blood, his body, his humanness. But why? On the one hand, the author of Hebrews is filling in the picture of who Jesus is. And if you're just exploring that, you're still discovering who is Jesus This is a great passage for you because you want the whole picture. We need to contemplate his divinity, that he is the son of God. But we also need to contemplate the incarnation, which means that he became one of us. But the author of Hebrews also has a pastoral intent here too. Remember what the the recipients of this letter are facing. They're urban Christians who are being persecuted, who are being marginalized for their faith. They're being pushed out of social circles. They're suffering and they're beginning to wonder, is faith really worth it? Because life seems to be getting harder. I thought you said this God loves us. Why is everything so difficult then? And so first the author says, remember who you're talking about. You're talking about the creator of the universe, the exalted one. And on many levels, that's comforting. But he now says, and remember his humanity. Because this will be your greatest source of comfort. And so that's the big question I want to ask this morning. Why is Jesus our greatest source of comfort? If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews. It's toward the back of your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. If you you don't own a Bible, you can take one of our great Bibles home with you. We'd love for you to, to have that. And everything is also going to be on the screen. Hebrews chapter two, beginning in verse five. It was not to the angels God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere, which should be a relief. Sometimes even the authors of scripture forget the exact scripture reference. He knows a lot of the other ones, but somewhere it's been testified. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, before we speak about Jesus, we have to speak about humanity. We have to speak about us. The author is pulling another Old Testament reference, which we've seen he does a lot. And this one is specifically from Psalm 8, which was our first reading. And originally, this is a psalm about us. It's a reflection on why God made us. The psalmist is meditating on Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, narrative, and story of Israel. And God, he made humanity. And we weren't quite angels, but we're not quite beasts. And we're crowned with glory and honor because we're made in the image of God which means we were given reason and intellect and emotions and creativity. But most of all, we were given a vocation. God made the world and he put it in subjection to our feet. He said, tend to the world, care for the world. And when God created this world, he said to us, it's on you, I want you to nurture it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to be co-creators. And we see this playing out in human cultures. From papyrus scrolls to the Gutenberg press, huts to skyscrapers, gardens to farms, salads to red velvet cupcake with cream cheese icing milkshakes, which are a real thing. The glories of human creating. This is all part of God's purpose for us, that we were made to create and contribute and design his creation even further. But in crowning us with honor and glory and making us in his image, God doesn't want us just to make some pretty amazing desserts. He wants us to cultivate human society and culture. So it's on us to see justice, to seek peace, to see universal prosperity, to share, to seek unity. This is why God's made us capable of so much. It's our responsibility to tend to the earth and to see that every person would flourish on earth. But as the author of Hebrews says, We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything in subjection to our feet. It's not happening. There's a relatively new sitcom called The Good Place. Has anyone watched this, The Good Place? Wow, it's really popular. And (laughs) I grew up watching Cheers. So anything with Ted Danson, like immediate nostalgia effect, I'll just watch it. Don't give CSI with Ted Danson any of your time. It's terrible. But The Good Place is pretty good. You should watch it. And in one of the episodes, his character says something so astute and brilliant. He's asked by his assistant, what is it with you and frozen yogurt? Have you not heard of ice cream? And he replied, sure. But I've come to really like frozen yogurt. There's something so human about it. Taking something great, ruining it a little so you can have more of it. It is such a perfect description of Western culture and consumerism. What we make is not always for creational flourishing, let alone human flourishing. It's created so that we consume more of it for cheaper. But more importantly, if we distort simple things like that, how much more do we distort the responsibilities God has entrusted to us? We don't always seek the things we're supposed to seek. Justice, where's the justice in the world? We blame God and he's looking at us saying, I made you capable of seeking justice. Why aren't you seeking it? Why aren't you seeking peace? Why aren't you sharing what you have and seeking universal prosperity, unity? Where are these things in the world? We don't yet see everything in subjection to humanity. And this verse It points back to Genesis 3. Tim Keller calls Genesis 3 the great irony of history. The great irony of history. I like this. The great irony is when human beings decided to be their own lords and masters and reject God. When we decided not to serve God, but to serve ourselves. The irony is that we can't even master ourselves. We can't even master our own emotions and soul, let alone the world outside of us. The world isn't under our feet. It's not under our control. Psychologically, socially, physically, spiritually, it's breaking down natural disasters and war and poverty. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be. We see disorder and chaos in the world. We haven't lived up to this great calling that we see in Genesis because we can't even master ourselves. There's a shadow cast all over the world. If you're a secular humanist, you'll just call this the way the world is. But if you have a Hebraic imagination, you'll say, this is the shadow of death. The shadow of death, it reigns over human life. The psalmists even call the shadow of death our shepherd, which I find terrifying. The shadow of death is our shepherd. A shepherd which leads toward brokenness and decay, tarnishing relationships, marring what is good, and infusing life with suffering. And death has cast its shadow all over creation. It's inescapable. You may have noticed that five times death is mentioned in the passage at hand. If you jump ahead to verse 15, do you see what the author says? Through fear of death, we were subject to lifelong slavery. Death is a sign that everything is not in subjection to us. And if anything, we are in subjection to death. Death is the one with the power, not us. The author writes, through fear of death, we were subject to lifelong slavery. But, you say, I'm not afraid of death. Maybe like Mark Twain, you say, I do not fear death. I've been dead for billions and billions of years before I was born and have not suffered the slightest inconvenience from it. Now, I like that quote, but I want to push back on it a bit. You may not be afraid of death, but our culture certainly is. People don't die, what do they do? Pass away. We don't have funerals, what do we have? Celebrations of life. We don't tend to the bodies of the dead ourselves. Have you ever touched a dead body? No, we have a privatized industry for that. Grief over death, there's no space for that in public unless it's a famous person. But if you've lost someone, then there I just did it, if someone you know died, you need to grieve in private. And when we're around someone who has lost someone to death, we feel uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to comfort them. We, we feel completely helpless in those situations. Many even believe, maybe some of you here, believe that science will ultimately end death. You know, some people are being frozen. Frozen. Choosing to be frozen in hopes that in the future, whatever disease that's currently frozen in their body will be curable. Stem cell research, and even this, I read this in Wired magazine recently. People are trying to upload their minds to a computer to create an avatar that their beloved ones will continue to be able to interact with. Why do you pursue any of these things? Yes, it's a hope to prolong life, but it's driven by the fear of death. You see, we live in a culture that wildly avoids death. Could it be... That if we live in such a culture, that maybe we're not as confident as Mark Twain after all. Sigmund Freud thought so, and rarely will he and I agree, but here we agree. Freud points out that we're, he'd probably tell me that we don't agree because I'm in love with my mother, but anyways, <laughs> Freud points out that we are deeply disturbed and deeply affected by ambivalent feelings about death. Deeply disturbed. See, on the one hand, he says we have a death wish. We have moments of shame or embarrassment where we think, I could die. Or moments of just boredom where we think death would be all right. But then on the other hand, we totally fear death. We think, I want to keep living. I don't want to die. And he says these two conflicting feelings, which is ambivalence, feeling two uh, different and extreme emotions at the same time, cause us to repress the whole issue altogether. Push it down deep. Freud wrote, the fear of death dominates us more than we know. The aim of all of life, he wrote, is death. He actually agrees with the author of Hebrews. Fear of death causes us to be subject to lifelong slavery. But we repress the whole conflict. We don't want to admit to ourselves how afraid we are. Because when it becomes conscious, it's deeply traumatic. Do you remember the first time you realized you were going to die? it's not comfortable. Leo Tolstoy, famous example of this. He wrote a confession. I'm going to read it at length. Something strange began to happen to me at age 50. Now I know like 300% of us in this church are under that age. It can happen to you before 50, so you still need to listen. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected, I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of death. The question, which brought me to the verge of suicide, sought an answer without which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I've written or done. He continues, Why then go on with all the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether or not I do this thing or that thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my whole life. But what was so surprising was how we can fail to see this. And finally, he concludes, for a time, it's possible to live intoxicated with life. But as soon as one is sober... It's impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud. And how often I've been told, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it. Just live. But I no longer can do that. Tolstoy is being emotionally and spiritually honest with us. He's doing something that many of us are too afraid to do. He's being honest about the meaning of death. If death is it, if death is the end, if death is all we're heading towards, everything you're doing is radically insignificant, especially sitting here on a Sunday morning wasting your time when you're going to die. Nothing makes any difference. But we repress that fear. And so we aim to make the most out of our lives while we have it. We aim to build a lasting legacy that we can leave behind. But even though we repress the thought of the fear of death, we drive it deep down. It's still there. And do you know what it does? The fear of death drives us. It drives us. Time is limited, so what are you supposed to do? Make the most of your life, maximize it. But do you know what happens when you internalize this worldview? People become commodities. You stick it out in a relationship as long as it's working for you, and if it's not working for you, you toss it aside because life is short. You only surround yourself with people who are similar to you that have the same efforts that make you enjoy life because heaven forbid you actually spend time with people who are different than you and make you feel uncomfortable. Life is short. You see, we end up trampling on people or using them for our pleasure or even feeling, failing to see their worth if we're driven by the fear of death because we want to live life for ourselves and make the most of it. Even if you try to value people in this life, and bring good to the world. You're trying to leave a lasting legacy, something good for the world to remember you by. Why are you doing it ultimately? To give you a sense of meaning and purpose while you have breath. So that people will remember what? You. Like your life mattered. In countless ways, and I could go on and on. We're desperately trying to convince ourselves that we count, that we matter, that the things we do make a difference, but they don't. Not if death is the end. We're in bondage politically and socially, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually to the fear of death. But the greatest bondage of all is that we don't even realize how handcuffed we are to it. So it shouldn't surprise us that in verse 14, even though it sounds odd to the modern ear, that the devil uses the power of death as a weapon. The devil? Maybe you're thinking, grow up, how primitive. But bear with me here. If there's a God, you know, an all-powerful, relational, supernatural good, why couldn't there be a devil? Why not? An all-powerful, supernatural evil. Surely there's more evidence for the devil's existence in the world than God's. And if such a being existed, of being absolutely committed to the misery of the world, of being trying to rob you of any meaning and purpose, what tool would this being use? Death and the fear of it. That's precisely what he does. The author of Hebrews is showing us everything is not in subjection to humanity. In fact, humanity is in subjection to death. We're slaves to it. So what's God gonna do about it? Let's go back to Hebrews here. The author is doing something remarkable with Psalm 8. It seems odd at first, because you're like, why did you pull out a psalm that tells humanity, you know, we're missing the point? You know, it's celebrating our great purpose, but then we look at the world and there's no way we're doing this. But he says, do you see? This psalm is actually about Jesus. This psalm, which was originally about humanity, a psalm we've never been able to live up to, this psalm is describing the one who's actually fulfilled it. Look at verse 9. We don't see everything in subjection to us, but what do we see? The author writes, We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The author continues in verse 10, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus, the eternal son of God, the one he says, for whom and by whom all things exist, descended. He came down. He became human. You see, God's not remote and aloof and disinterested in the world. God came into the world. Humanity was crowned with glory and honor. Why? Why? we're made in the image of God. But Jesus is crowned with glory and honor because God himself came into the world. And what did he do? He suffered death. That was his crown and his honor. And in doing so, the author of Hebrews says he became our founder of salvation. It could be translated as author or originator or pioneer or even captain. And however you translate it, It's conveying that Jesus is our founder because he's gone somewhere that no one else could go, no one else could explore. Ernest Shackleton was a polar explorer uh, who led three British expeditions to the Antarctic. Uh, Historians aren't sure if he actually put this ad out, but this newspaper ad's been attributed to him and I like it, so I'm gonna share it. Men wanted for hazardous journey. Low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, much like working in our office, safe return, doubtful, Honor and recognition in event of success. People signed up for it. People went and explored Antarctica. I don't know why. I don't know. I know Dara just went there. Good on you. But I don't know why you go down there. Penguins, I guess. But we admire people who have this incredible risk tolerance. We admire explorers. You know, this is why Alpha got Bear Grylls, because he's an explorer, and we admire these sort of people. And Jesus... Jesus came to earth. He became human, accepting not just the risk. You see, explorers have to count the risk. But Jesus accepted the cost. You see, he didn't just accept the risk of becoming human, of exposing himself to the the, the folly of humanity and the things that can happen to us. He came accepting the cost. He came knowing he would die. And this is where he's our pioneer. This is where he's our captain. This is the founder of our salvation. He's crowned with honor and glory because he paved and blazed a trail that we could never clear for ourselves. He defeated an enemy we could never overcome. He punched a hole through the wall of death. He didn't just taste death and rest in his grave. He ended it. Through his death, the author continues in verse 14, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And he's delivered all those who through through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does that mean? Jesus hasn't just punched a hole through the wall of death for himself. He didn't just resurrect for himself. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it for us. He's destroyed the hold that death has had upon us and he will deliver us from the slavery that death has imposed upon us. But how? The Christian faith isn't just some big belief in the afterlife. There's enough of that floating around in the world. If we're just talking about floating around in heaven and playing harps, that's just not interesting. The core, the crux, the heart of the Christian faith is resurrection. How do we know Jesus punched a hole right through the wall of death? He resurrected. Death couldn't contain him. He came back to life physically in his body within history. And there were eyewitnesses who saw this and reported. And we went into this in detail last week. So if you missed that sermon, you can listen to that. But this is the only miracle you have to wrestle with if you wanna become a Christian. If you accept this miracle, you work backwards from here and you can accept the rest. This is the defining miracle that you have to say: did it or did it not happen? Because if it happened, this is who Jesus is. This is the result. If this miracle is not true, Saint Paul says we're to be pitied; we're fools. But if the resurrection is true, because what of Je- what Jesus has done, because he came to life on the other side of death, we don't have to fear death anymore. Death isn't an end; it's just a door. You see, the author of Hebrews doesn't explicitly reference the resurrection here. You might be wondering how I'm getting to this point. But remember the overarching framework of this letter. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God in majesty. How did he get there? He descended and he ascended. Well, what happened in between? He died and he rose. His resurrection is the defeat of death and the deliverance of us from death into eternal life. And this is why Paul cries out in Corinthians, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The resurrection is death's defeat. And we believe that this means every deathbed is resurrection. Every gravestone will be rolled away. Now, before we get back to our guiding question, why is Jesus our greatest source of comfort? I want to address one other fear. Many of us here aren't afraid of death per se, as much as we are afraid of the suffering that precedes death. Do you understand the distinction there? We're not necessarily afraid to die. We've kind of come to terms with that. We've reflected on it. We might repress it, but you know, we've grappled with that. What we're afraid of is how we might if it's prolonged, if we'll lose our physical abilities, if we'll lose our minds. We're worried about the other forms of suffering that'll happen between now and the day we die. Which is why so many cultures in the world right now are taking a hold of the reins of death and choosing the timing for our end. We're afraid of the suffering that leads to death. That's our fear as well. But isn't that exactly the problem the author of Hebrews is addressing here? Remember, these urban Christians are suffering. They're losing homes. They're being pushed out of their jobs. They're losing their status and honor in a culture uh, uh, that needs those things to even operate. And some of them have been martyred. They've seen people suffer on the way to death and they're thinking, is this worth it? Is holding on to Jesus worth the suffering that leads to death? Jesus didn't just die. He went through the suffering that leads to death as well. He walked through that shadow too. You see his death didn't come out of nowhere. He wasn't surprised by his death. We join him in the garden of Gethsemane and we see the existential anguish he goes through at what is about to come for him, the death that's coming. He goes through a, a series of sham trials all the while while knowing that the verdict is already declared. He's going to die. And he goes through the psychological torment that is involved in suffering on your way to death. And it's only unparalleled by the very way he died. He suffered an agonizing death on the cross. So why then is Jesus our greatest source of comfort? Why is he our greatest source of comfort? Look at verse 16. The author writes, Surely it's not angels that he helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In the weeks to come, we're gonna talk about Jesus being our great and faithful high priest. And so I'm not gonna go into that in detail now. But in the reference he makes about it, he's saying, sin's been dealt with. Why did death come into the world? It's the consequence of sin. But now, our sins have been atoned for. They've been put away from us entirely. How could death hold us away from God anymore? It's a consequence for something that no longer exists. But more importantly, the comfort is not just that we're forgiven. And this is so core to the Christian faith. So listen to me when I say this is of the utmost importance for us to understand. Jesus helps us. Jesus helps us. It's stressed here three times. Jesus helps us. The Greek word for it is he grasps us by the hand. The God of the universe. The one by whom and for whom all things exist. The one who sustains the universe by the power of his word. Helps you. Grasps you by the hand. He doesn't take your hand limply or with disinterest. He grasps your hand and he'll walk through the suffering with you. And he'll walk through death with you as well. And his help matters because he too suffered. This is where the humanity is important. Jesus wasn't partially human. He was fully human. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows the suffering that leads to death and he knows the suffering of the anguish it can cause us. And he can look at you in your suffering and say me too. And he gives you his hand. He grasps your hand and he walks through it with you. And verse 12 and 13 describes Jesus as our brother, as our family. He helps us as an intimate ally, ally, not just as the god of the universe but someone we can relate to, a brother, a family member, someone who's been through it for us, someone who's blazed the way for us and who says, I know this can be difficult, but I'm going to walk with you every step of the way. So what is there to fear? All of us have fears that we bring into this room. Some of us are more aware right now that we're getting closer to death than others. Some of us might die tomorrow. We don't know. Some of us are afraid of jobs. Some of us are afraid of relationships breaking down. Some of us are afraid of a variety of things. But what is there to fear? Our pioneer, our captain, our leader, he's paved the way. Even if you're overcome by your suffering, because he doesn't promise us that we're not going to suffer. So even if you're overcome by your suffering, your suffering cannot overcome Jesus. Because death has been defeated. And while we may still experience the shadow of death and see it in our midst and, and, and tainting things in life, we also know that everything is subjected to Jesus now, that he is enthroned at the right hand of God. And while we do not see that reality here, we know it's true and we know it's the reality that we're heading toward. There's nothing to fear. Often it's what's good about life that makes us fear death. I think that's worth acknowledging. A heavy topic like this, uh, I I don't want you to think that Christians don't see good in the world or beauty. We do. Life has so much beauty and glory. We fear saying goodbye to the ones we love, the good we've seen, the air we've breathed. It's only when these things are totally absent or hurt that we begin to desire death. In the world to come, However, everything will be in subjection to Jesus. Which means our longing for all that's true and noble and right and beauty and good, all the things in this life that make you want to keep living, that make you wish that life didn't have an end because of death, all of these things that we see that are good and beautiful and true will finally be realized. Which means life is not meaningless, but more deeply meaningful than you realized to begin with. It's infinitely more meaningful. All that you love and value, all the goodness in this life is even better than you previously thought because it's all a glimmer of the world to come. It's all just a faint hint of God's goodness of the world properly subjected to him. And so when you see good in your life, don't be discouraged that death will end it, but celebrate that Christ has redeemed it will make it even more beautiful and good. In the world to come, you see, when Jesus walks with us, he restores the image of God in us. And now we can start creating and walking with God, not subject to the fear of death, not using people as commodities, but treating them with dignity, with worth, with love. Because that's how God's treated us. He became one of us. We can treat people like that too. We can start seeking justice. We can do all of these things, but only because Jesus came and he grasps us by the hand and he says, I will walk with you through death and into life.